Shake the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh yeah! Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. Oh shit. Oh, I'm Kyle Gordon. Oh <laughs> Oh did, shit. Did you forget your name or did you oh, forget shit. to do a special voice for us? What happened there? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. Oh, maybe a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Well, oh, yeah. Off- well, because I'm on uh, 40 cc's of mescaline right now. So I am just <laughs> in outer space. And you're on 40 cc's of mescaline because it's only appropriate. Yes. Because today we are going to discuss. The Love Album from 1967, Forever Changes. Oh, yeah. Because this is Kick the Jukebox. This is your favorite musicology podcast that is an exploration of our tastes, a deep dive into an album of the week, and a celebration of our continuing friendship. Woo! Kyle, how you doing? I am excellent. I am thriving. Life is great. Life is good. You know? Praise be to he, for it is he who guides us. Oh my gosh. Love it. <laughs> I love this, how religious you've gotten. Yeah, exactly. During during the during the pandemic. It's been uh-huh. just great. And I'm not being sarcastic at all, and neither are you. Yes, indeed. <laughs> awesome. What have you been listening to this week? So actually, I just realized that it's kind of related to the album we're talking about today, but... Cool. We're, did we bring up Billy Preston in a past episode recently? Yeah, during the uh, the Sly episode. Yes, because right. I, I recommended that album is very yes. good. The one that Sly, uh, the one that Sly produced. Yeah, the wildest organ in town. Yep. Yes, that's what I've been listening to. It's really good, really cool. And then I remembered that. That's so uh, nice. Yeah, they <laughs> that it's really fun album. And yeah, and then love early on. Arthur Lee and Johnny Eccles played with a young Billy Preston in L.A. So Mm -hmm. um, it all comes full circle. But if you haven't listened to it, now you get the Kyle seal of approval. Billy Preston, wildest organ in town. He makes some strange organ sounds, but it's really fun, really cool. Well, you know, it's it's cool because I definitely think that through our episode about Sly and now through our episode about these guys, we are kind of talking about like, this interesting contingent of like black rock guys who were like second wave rock guys. Like this isn't like the fathers of rock. This isn't like, these aren't the Chuck Berry guys. Right. These are the guys that grew up listening to people like Chuck Berry. They've Uh absorbed a lot of what's been happening in terms of popular music and then kind of have their own spin on it. But I would say that like, there's a a lot of soul influence that maybe like their white contemporaries didn't totally have, you know? For sure. And they all took that and went a lot of different ways. Like Jimi Hendrix, Arthur Lee, and Billy Preston. I mean, they're all over the map. Yeah, they're really different from each other. Absolutely. But but they are similar in that they're rock guys. You know, they're not strictly soul r&b blues folk any of that stuff it's all combined and but they're rock guys i think yeah absolutely i totally i totally agree love it cool. <laughs> what about you you know so we lost emmett rhodes this week yes and he is so fucking great and mm-hmm. i've really been enjoying getting into him really in the last year or so so i was listening to a lot of emmett rhodes this week and he kind of connects to our 
episode we did last week, the Paul McCartney episode, mm. which I think is kind of interesting because he was a member of another LA group, or Mary, they were called Merry Go Round. And, you know, they sang, you know, uh, you're a very lovely woman, but I think I have to turn you down this time. You know, very <laughs> sweet, very quiet, very lovely. He wrote yeah. that, Emmett Rhodes. And then he struck out on his own after that band broke up and had a recording contract. And he recorded all of his stuff at a home studio, playing all of his own instruments, and was clearly like hugely influenced by the Beatles and hmm. was nicknamed the One Man Beatles. So he was sort of doing the home recording thing, the home studio thing, and being quite experimental actually really b before McCartney was doing it. And mm. I think that's sort of an interesting connection. And Emmett Rhodes was often mistaken for McCartney in the way he sung Interesting. Well. Yeah, and there were certain DJs that would trick everybody and say, this is the new Beatles recording and then play an Emmett Rhodes song. <laughs> I feel like that happened with a lot of artists. Oh, uh, yeah. More, more and less explicitly. You know, sometimes it was like the Beatles spelled with two E's, but then Hopefully. sometimes it's just Harry Nilsson or Emmett Rose or whatever. <laughs> yes, sometimes it's Harry Nilsson. It's like, this is the Beatles. It's like, how dare you call Harry Nilsson? <laughs> yeah, but Emmett Rhodes is also a, a big sort of uh, pioneer of power pop, known to be that as well, and like very reclusive. Um, Really interesting guy. His first three albums, you know, that were recorded in his home studio during his recording heyday are all available on Spotify under the Emmett Rhodes collection, which is a big collection. It's just like the three albums in track order. But mm. I highly recommend it. It's really wonderful, especially the self-titled album is like really awesome. It's a really good early power pop, great late 60s songwriter album. And he's definitely one of those people that I feel very much like Sly, someone we were talking about before. He should have had a resurgence that where, you know, he was really reclusive and he was really reluctant to work and he should have had a resurgence and a new respect and it just never really happened for him. And I'm sad mm -hmm. that he's gone now and that that's not going to happen for him. You know, like I feel like he's sort of on the same tier as like someone like a Rodriguez, mm. you know, and uh, I've seen Rodriguez play and that was great. And I yeah. would have loved to have seen Emmett Rhodes and it's a shame. But I think Emmett Rhodes, and you know, it's a shame also that, you know, it took his death. You know, I, I've been meaning to get into him, but I just never, you know, took the yeah, time. Yeah, I think you'd really like him, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But um, it's interesting because I feel like the name Emmett Rhodes has always just kind of been in the ether as someone like a really important artist that maybe was, uh, you know, unappreciated and who, who didn't get the appreciation he deserved in his time. But he was always a name that people knew, whereas, which is good, I think. But I think like a Rodriguez really, they brought him out you know was discovered out of nowhere yeah yeah that he was really really big in one part of the world right for a very brief period of time right yeah and i guess emmett rhodes's story is a little more complicated and it's i think something we should definitely cover uh we should cover one of his albums in a in a later podcast for sure yeah but i think that he was just there something that didn't connect with his later career where he was receiving a lot of recognition and he even recorded a, a fourth album in the 2000s with a whole bunch of guests, you know, like Amy Mann, like big people. Mm -hmm. But 
something just didn't quite happen where he achieved that level where he could be selling out big venues or that even he was deciding to play a lot. And that's a shame because his music is pretty, pretty wonderful. Yeah. And uh, on a personal note, in the early 70s, when he was recording all those things, he was shit hot sexy. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so for anyone who likes a Handsome singer-songwriter, Jesus Christ, Emma Rose is one of those guys. <laughs> but speaking of reclusive, somewhat broken songwriters, <laughs> let's, talk yes, about, yes. let's talk about Forever Changes and the band Love. Yes, indeed. So yeah, so this is one of mine, but when I recommended we do this one, you got really excited. So you've been listening to it for a while as well. Yeah, I love this album. And this was maybe one of... I mean, this is like an example of one of the first bands that I heard that was like, you have to hear it. You'll never hear. It's like one of those things you'll never hear unless someone recommends it to you. Yeah. And the fir- and it just like kind of this music that seems, especially when you're first getting into rock music, 60s and 70s rock or, you know, what you might hear on like a classic rock radio station. This is the stuff that is like hits you out of nowhere like the really out of left field type of music yeah. um and uh but, yeah but, so but i you, love this album yeah follow question did you hear a lot of this growing up while listening to classic rock radio because i certainly don't remember anything no. from this album being on rotation no 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 i mean i think it was i mean i'm just saying from the perspective of like learning and getting to know just rock in yes. general and yeah. then this music comes along and kind of like upsets everything you thought you knew about like 60s and 60s rock pretty much yeah no i agree with that and i feel like something that's interesting about this album is i kind of forget where it falls in the firmament mm. of sort of like the pantheon of like really important big albums right because it isn't really played a lot in any sort of mainstream way. And you're no, right. You, it still. does need to be recommended to you, but it's like considered, you know, one of the best albums of all time by like yes. all these different, very rock oriented, classic rock oriented lists like Mojo right. or Rolling Stone. Like this is really up there with like a pet sounds. Yes. In, in terms of rightfully being, so, I think I agree, but you know, pet sounds, you hear, wouldn't it be nice on the radio? You right. know, uh, you never hear, you know, anything on the radio from this album when I think that there's a lot on this album that could completely fit within that format. Like, especially something like Alone Again or, which is the track we're going to talk about. You know, yeah, I yeah. It, it I does mean, that's, fit, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I think, I think it's just a combination of one, love just was they just never were that big in their time. Yeah. So that definitely contributes. But also I do think, look, I think this is totally comparable and in the same league as Pet Sounds. Yeah. For sure. But I do think this album is a little more dense. True. uh, Both lyrically and musically. It's a bit more dynamic uh, or not dynamic. Like I think, 
you know, Pet Sounds definitely has some unconventional song structures and arrangements and like, you know, you get the bass harmonica or whatever on there. But like, I think in this one, the 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 songwriting and the arrangement is so unconventional and it you are surprised many times within every song, even though it's so pop oriented. It's like really just a great pop album as much as it is a great rock album. I think that makes it a little too uh, unconventional maybe for like even now like a mainstream like you know a lot of mainstream play that's totally yeah i i do agree with that and it is it's it's one that isn't very hard to get into on an initial listen it's mm. obviously really beautiful lush melodic but it is one that takes quite a while to really crack what's going on in it yeah, you know? and, I, and think I think that makes it mm-hmm. great because it's it's repeat list. It's so listenable, and it, it it really benefits from a repeat listen. Yes, and I think one thing too that it may suffer from. This is just a guess, but like their incorporation of more, you know, the, you know, they they sound a little like sometimes like a Burt Bacharach or like '60s lounge type of music, which I love. Their them incorporating that element because they make it really cool, mm-hmm. but like to a rockist type of audience while there are some like rockers on this album i think a lot of that you know takes people by surprise especially when they're expecting like a quote-unquote rock or quote-unquote classic rock type of album or sound that is true because they do draw from so many different influences right and and we'll get and we'll definitely get into that the thing is that the best classic rock does and that is that's definitely what separates a band like Love from a band like, oh, I don't know, the Eagles. <laughs> and, <laughs> right, I'm, right. and I'm, I'm semi joking about that. I, I have like an irrational dislike of the Eagles, which I've mentioned before, which like <laughs> I shouldn't really have. But I, but I would compare this to certain moves, this album to certain moves that like early Crosby, Stills, and Nash did, you mm. know, early on, drawing from like a lot of like. Latin American influence or uh-huh. different influence, more like jazz standard or like great American songbook vocal influence as well. For sure. But there was definitely, there's definitely this album takes some leaps into the strange and into the weird that those guys never did. And a lot of their contemporaries never did, which is why I think you're right. It didn't get the play that other, you know, that other bands did at the time and sure. into, and into sort of into the present. Mm-hmm. So he, so here we are. We've got Love. They were a band that was founded by Arthur Lee, who's a really interesting, yes. controversial, str- very strange, bizarre figure. Very, yeah. Yeah, so he was originally from Tennessee, from Memphis, but he had lived in Los Angeles since he was uh, five. In specifically in South Central LA, which is where, you know, black people were allowed to live in LA at the time. <laughs> and he went to the same high school as his future love guitarist, Johnny Eccles, as well. And apparently he wasn't a really great student, Arthur Lee. He had some interests in sports and in animals and in music. But then in high school, very luckily, he ended up training on the accordion, which he really enjoyed. And 
ended up being, you know, a musician who was never formally trained in music notation, but could play by ear and could start mimicking songs on the radio and was actually inspired by Eccles to form a band because Eccles played some rock and roll with one of like his like band on like high school band ensembles. Mm -hmm. So that's the two of them kind of coming from this, you know, middle lower class black background in Los Angeles. And mm -hmm. then just on the flip side of that, because I think this is so much the story of the band, there's guitarist and songwriter Brian McLean, yep. who really grew up in like very specific white upper class LA. One mm -hmm. of his early girlfriends was apparently Liza Minnelli. <laughs> so that shows that he was, you know, growing up around rich Hollywood people. Apparently yep. they used to sit at the piano together and sing songs from The Wizard of Oz. So a bit <laughs> of a different background than Arthur Lee. And then, you know, later on, just of note, because she is a, in the Kick the Jukebox Hall of Fame, he is Maria McKee's half-brother. Yes. Well. Yeah, that, from, yes. from Lone Justice. And Maria McKee is your wife. So. Yes, <laughs> and he wrote um, one of the songs on their uh, debut album. That's right, absolutely. I did not know that until doing uh, research for this album. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting, yeah. Yep. So Brian McLean was hanging out in the Laurel Canyon scene, and he was a roadie for the Birds, and that's how he met Arthur Lee. And Arthur had a band called the Grassroots, Crazy. which is not the band that was the actual Grassroots, Yep. So he decided, it's, apparently, according to him, it made him angry that there was another band by the name of The Grassroots. And instead of like countering with hate, he decided to counter with love. And that's how he thought of the name love. Yeah. He was just, just going to counter with, with love. They were the first racially integrated band, one of the first, which puts them in a similar place to Sly and the Family Stone. Mm -hmm. Oh, they, they couldn't have been more, more different during that time. And they had a hard time finding success. I've heard different versions of this story in my research and also recently watching that Laurel Canyon documentary. So they were signed to Elektra. This was Elektra's first foray into the rock world. Yep. Yep. And Elektra was really excited about them. And apparently they encountered a lot of problems because the South wouldn't book them because huh. they were integrated and they weren't allowed to play anywhere in the South in the mid sixties. This is, we're talking 65, 66, right? They weren't allowed to play. That was a huge barrier for them. But there's also the story that Lee refused to tour as well, yes. that he was right. not interested in touring. Yes. So just sort of two interesting sides of the coin, but they were really a brilliant band. And I do believe they would have done, very well for themselves and that there were racial factors at play here. Very true. It's also interesting to note, and I think why it kind of took the label by surprise that they wouldn't tour, especially with later albums, like I'm, I'm sure the, the racial factor touring in the South, but he wouldn't even go to New York or anywhere in the North. And I think that's just a uh, consequence of his eccentricities, but and wanting to, kind of like in a, a Brian Wilson type of way, he became like obsessed with just being in the studio. Yeah. But also, it's just interesting to note that, you know, especially early on, they were a hard, hard gigging 
band in LA. So it's yes. not like a Nick Drake thing where they were just terrified to play live. It was, they love playing live. They just wanted to stay in LA. Yeah, totally. They were such an LA band and mm -hmm. they also were early, especially Arthur Lee was an early fan of the doors yeah, and basically kind of forced Electra, like kind right. of badgered Electra to sign the doors. Yep. And it was much to his detriment because once Electra signed the doors, they realized they had something very viable with them. Yes. And kind of paid zero attention to love after yep. that, which yep. is, is a really tragic, tragic story. And, and the doors for me, I'd love your take on this. They've never been one of the ones that I've had an easy time getting into. Me neither. Me neither. Yeah. Because yeah. they sound like a cornier version of love. I think you're right. I do think they do. And I do think there's a bit of a affectation to what Jim Morrison's doing that I've never been able to get into. But I also feel like as a fan of this era of music, I really should try to give them another listen. Like, I don't think their Eagles category for me is being no, like, no, no, I do not think I will like this. You know, as much as I like Ray Manzarek from The Doors, who later went on to produce X, who yes. just seemed like a wonderfully geeky doof yes. of a smart music producer <laughs> Yeah, like I think he really offsets, absolutely. Like the stuff that makes the doors kind of insufferable is there's good old Ray Manzarek, who's like our, our tribe, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I think, I think the doors, well, I, just to go back to that corniness thing, it's like, I think where love combined all these elements that were happening in the 60s, including some of the like, again, the Burt Bacharach, easy listening lounge stuff, which I think they incorporate the best parts of that. And then pretty much, you know, to use a tired expression, like, you know, it's like, you know, easy listening on acid or like Burt Bacharach on acid. <laughs> but I think, you know, the doors kind of took that and still kind of sounded like they kind of took some, they didn't always take the best parts of that sound. I agree with that. I agree with that. There, yeah, there is, there's something about them that, that doesn't totally rub me the right way, but mm -hmm. love, love these guys. <laughs> uh, and something that's kind of leading up to what they were like when they recorded this album, they really had a much more hard rocking garagey sound yes, before definitely. this, this record. Mm -hmm. They had released two albums in pretty quick succession with each other and had a minor hit with their cover of Bacharach and Hal David's Little Red Book, yes. which apparently the reason why they wrote it, the, their version is like much darker and kind of crunchier and, and a little stranger. And it apparently doesn't sound like Burt Bacharach at all. It doesn't sound like Burt Bacharach at all, but... The Bacharach song is somewhat frenetic in itself. Like it's not mm. like, and that's something that they enjoyed about it. And apparently they tried to recreate it from memory and that's why it sounds the way that it does. Interesting. They, they didn't listen to any recordings of it while they recreated it. And they were at the time of, or of Forever Changes being recorded, they were living communally yes. in a castle type house that was formerly owned by one of my main men, Bella Lugosi. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and was apparently where they were living, and they were rehearsing there and also storing a large amount of guns and heroin yeah. as well. And just be, like, just, you know, whatever you think was going on, 
is what was going on. Yeah, and that's something about love that needs to be said. And I think that's part of what we bring to the table, our perspective, is a lot of the stuff that you think bands were doing in the 60s, they weren't doing and love was. Yes. Love was re the real fucking deal. They were a weird, hard drug using, strange, violent, but very liberal. Yes. Um, somewhat from, from the rumors that I've heard, and I want to preface this by saying that they that these are, are rumors. I was speaking to a friend of mine who has on good authority he wouldn't he wouldn't just make this shit up has on good authority that like arthur lee and brian mclean were sleeping together at certain uh -huh. points that they were somewhat like fl fluid and interesting there were, and and arthur lee there were a lot of gay rumors surrounding arthur lee for the rest of his life and it may have just been that there was a fl sexual fluidity with right. some of the band members that they they were really experimental and trying a lot for the mid 60s that a lot of other people just they wouldn't go there you know oh, i which i which i have to quickly mention brian mclean is the weirdest looking hot guy ever he is he's a weird looking hot guy yeah <laughs> absolutely like, he's like traditionally good looking but he is a weird looking guy. Well, he's got sort of a, uh, not to be, I, I hey, listen, listen, I, I tap that. I'm definitely not going <laughs> to say I wouldn't. But he's got sort of a weird, like, kind of pinched face, which is what yes, I think you're talking yes, about. Yes, 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 yes. He did certainly have kind of a, a cute kind of, you know, heartthrobby vibe. Uh, right. And it's one of the reasons why Lee wanted him in the band was mm. for, for marketing purposes. And apparently, Brian McLean joined Love the same day that he had a failed audition for the Monkees. No way, <laughs> now, really? Yes, but that, but all those musicians auditioned for the Monkees. That's uh. not a huge surprise. You know, pretty much anybody that anybody that hadn't been signed to a recording contract and were young musicians who were like somewhat good looking. Everybody auditioned for the monkeys, so Brian was one of those people, but he joined love that night. Hmm. Yeah, and that just sort of shows in the in the grand scheme of like the story of LA rock from the 60s, where love was at at the time and what was going on. Yeah, and I think that's a really good transition to so Arthur Lee is the dictator of this band. Yes. You know, it's it's famously not a democratic, it's Arthur Lee in love. Later they would just brand it as Arthur Lee in love. Yeah, but it's yeah. Arthur Lee's brainchild he's the mad genius but it has to be said he brought brian mclean in as you mentioned for all these reasons he was like a young heartthrob type guy he and arthur lee has even said you know he brought brian mclean turned into this monster for arthur lee yes. because he's this insane control freak and he pretty much brought brian mclean in to help you know in his words you know help me realize my dream and then brian mclean emerged as this incredible songwriter. And a songwriter who totally jives with Arthur Lee's style. Yes. So yes. that's that's something that's, it's a real shame in this story that they weren't able to reconcile whatever was going on there. And Brian McLean said later, so he left the band after Forever Changes. Yes. And he said, he was like, we, me and Arthur both thought, 
you know, they were at each other's throats because they were competitive and they were both, I think, a bit of control freaks. And they left and tried to do it on their own. And Brian McClain later said, you know, we were never able to, we were never as good apart. Yeah, as they were together. And mm -hmm. by the time that Forever Changes came out, Arthur Lee really wanted all of the songs to be his that he wrote. But the first song that we're going to cover is a Brian McLean track, which ended yep. up being the single and is brilliant and also just totally encapsulates that love sound. For sure. So definitely this is a story of two songwriters at odds with each other. And just before we listen to that track, the sound that we're gonna hear is a much softer folk oriented sound for them that was yep. mainly brought by their producer, Bruce Botnick, who yep. also produced for The Doors and The Beach Boys as well. And mm -hmm. they all kind of agreed before they started that they wanted a more soft sound for this record, that they mm -hmm. were interested in exploring some folk sounds that they were influenced by they hadn't explored before. Yep. So that being said, let's listen to the opener, Alone Again or, which is a Stone Cold Kick a Jukebox classic. <laughs> is such an incredible album opener and I'm really glad we're talking about it I and mean, this was this was your choice so I'd love for you to start us off here what what do you love about about this one yeah I think this is a really great introduction to um, I mean one it just slaps I mean it's so um, melodically beautiful so catchy uh, but also like so dynamic and dense and I think that's exactly it really kicks the album off sort of showing the best of love on this album right it's it's just at the at its core a really sweet catchy pop song three minutes 17 seconds right just a great single but then also it show it demonstrates just the dynamic complexity right you it starts off with just that you know kind of dark minor chord classical guitar picking and then it or maybe folkier sound and then it swells with that like sharp you know violin and the orchestra swells and just kind of gives you an introduction of what you're going to get on the rest of the album and it's really a big departure from again the love on the first two albums and also you have these odd tempo changes yeah which um, is which is to, indicative of the whole album yeah right for sure. And it's just it's just a weird, really unique pop song. It is um, so yeah. clearly Spanish influenced. For sure. Spy. Yeah, and they brought in a mariachi band to kind of back them up and that amazing like, 
you know, Spanish, like, bolero, you might call it, like, mm-hmm. trumpet solo thing is just awesome. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful, and it definitely feels like it comes from a really respectful, like, multicultural place. Do, oh, yeah. do you know what I mean by that? As opposed to it being, like, appropriative, it yep. feels like it's sort of a lot of the sounds of L.A. thrown into a thrown into a blender in a really like celebratory and way. And that's what the band is, yeah. Yeah, totally. So it is, it's a it's a great opener for that reason. And it's so interesting that it's a Brian McLean track. I mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard the the demo recording of that, of this. Um a McLean quote unquote solo album was released in the 2000s, but it was all of his recently found songwriting demos from when he was with love. Mm-hmm. that didn't get recorded mm-hmm. uh, because of Lee's influence, basically. Right. And then he tried to have a solo career with Elektra after he left Love, but they rejected these demos. And they're beautiful and complex and really interesting. And the demo of this is him playing the guitar in the way that he plays it on the album, which shows that at the very core of this song, he wanted it to have this, this cool Spanish music influence, hmm. you know, this, like this, like this mariachi influence. It definitely has a flamenco influence as well. Yeah, I would say for sure. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's, it's cool. Yeah. The, what you're saying about the dynamic, it can't be overstated. The balance on this record is really phenomenal between yep the the band members and then like the string section that they bring in and the horn mm-hmm. section that they bring in it's like this is this giant kind of symphonic like psych dark psychedelic opus the yes. whole record and this track really lays that down yeah and i think it's just interesting that you know again Arthur Lee is the face, the heart, and the soul of this band. But this, you might say, is probably their most well-known song. Yeah. And it's a it's a Brian song. And he helped arrange it, too, where, you know, kind of Arthur Lee was really took the helm and kind of was the Brian Wilson type, you know, mega genius who arranged all the orchestration on this album. But but no, Brian, Brian uh, kind of helmed the orchestration on, on this one, too. So testament yes. to him. Yeah, absolutely testament to him. Yeah, it shows sort of what could have been if this had been a bit more of an egalitarian group, you know? Mm-hmm. But yep. but then they wouldn't have become a weird, strange, dark magic. You know? <laughs> like, you yeah. know, I, I think that that's so much part of Lee becoming sort of this this weird, aggressive, enigmatic leader. Right. Know? Yeah, and, and that's kind of the, the to show the contrast... Uh, I want to listen to a little bit of Red Telephone, which is like a real Arthur Lee classic. For sure. Sitting on the hillside Watching all the people die I'll feel much better on the other I believe in magic Why? Because it is so quick I don't need power when I'm hypnotized Look in my eyes What are you seeing? I 
How do you feel? I feel real phony when my name is Bill. Or was that Bill? So this one is interesting because I read some critics talking about it in advance of this podcast, and a lot of them are like, well, the lyrics are nonsensical. And I agree that on a, a literal level, they make no sense. But I would say that on sort of a, a gut level, he's painting this really scattered and ominous picture. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> yeah, it is scary, right? It is, and mm -hmm. it's scary because it doesn't follow a logical story progression of, of lyrics. And yep. I, I also think it's, it's scary very much like a psychedelic experience in that your thoughts are all over the place and you need, sort of are trying to latch on to one thought, but then something else takes that away from you. And mm -hmm. definitely, I would argue that... At the, so at the time, these guys were... Their drugs of choice were LSD and heroin, which mm -hmm. is a pretty awful combo. Yeah. Like, that's just not... That's not good to hear. Uh, <laughs> and that they were really before they started recording this album were pretty incapacitated and having a very hard time writing together or playing together. Yep. Uh, but they owed this this album, so their producer brought in the Wrecking Crew. Yep. And the Wrecking Crew, you know, who are the, the famous group of L.A. session musicians who played on pretty much every hit song that came out of the period at, you know at the time that you, that you like like look it up and the wrecking crew probably <laughs> played on it yep and they played on two of the tracks from this album they played on and more again which is gorgeous and on daily planet which is also great but it kind of shocked the band into like getting along and behaving again and like mm -hmm. and focusing but that doesn't negate the fact that clearly these songs were written in this like very in the from a really dark dark probably very addled place yeah and i think what's often been said about this album and a lot of great sophisticated music like pop music and art from the 60s is and it's been said before but you know this album represents in a lot of ways kind of the unmasking of the facade and naivete of 60s hippie culture and Absolutely. summer of love type of stuff the dark underbelly and i think arthur lee is the perfect personification of that like he is this mad genius but he never was this this like peace and love type of guy he was like you know running around with guns and the type of guy be like give me my fucking money if you you know like like i did this gig give me my fucking money type of guy and he was an angry person too Absolutely. and and he was he, he is you know as much of the poster child of the psychedelic 60s as anyone and this album captures that really well and this song i think really does yeah i agree very much so and this song ends with this very very creepy chance uh, yes. You know, they're locking him up today. They're throwing away the key. <laughs> uh, and then it goes on from there. And it's just sort of this repetitive, like, mantra over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that there was a really strong element to this album and Lee's music in general, where he felt trapped by the constraints of, of society. Mm -hmm. And that is so much in contrast with a lot of the other songwriters that were around him at the time that 
according to them, were having a total blast running around LA, sleeping with each other, <laughs> doing drugs, and leading a really somewhat idyllic life, at least for a few for a few years, really pre-Manson killings. Right, exactly. And I think I think you know, and this may be me reading into it, but I think Brian McLean sort of represented a bit more of that desire in I his agree. songwriting. I um, agree. You know, like he has the song Orange Skies uh, on the second album. And what I've heard Johnny Eccles, the guitar player, say was that they were frustrated a lot with Brian's songwriting, even though they knew it was gorgeous, because he sort of wrote in this 60s pie in the sky mode of like, you know, cotton candy, chocolate rainbows, you know, that kind of shit. And he was a bit more in that flower power, love child, pie in the sky sort of mentality where Arthur was like, you know, I love this music, but, you know, life is hard. Yeah, and I'm and I'm I'm going to write about it. I'm going yes. to express that. Yeah, right. and even the difference between this song Red Telephone, which comes about halfway through the record, and Alone Again or which is the first song on the on the record is that Brian is writing about like trying to meet up with a with a woman and trying to, you know, align with the wishes of a of a woman he's into. Right. And then she sort of she doesn't meet up with him. And then he's like, okay, well, I'm alone again. Like that's kind of what the song's about, which is sort of this complacent viewpoint. And right. then here's Red Telephone, just in contrast, which is like this thought rambling, poetic speech uh, that is about, you know, entrapment, alienation, yeah. uh, sort of invokes like imprisonment, you know, and and also is a real... At the time, Arthur Lee apparently was really concerned he was going to die. And mm. I think a lot of the, the parts of this album, a lot of the content from this album comes from that place. And he wanted this album, and it, it succeeds, as being a meditation on memory and how memory works. That was mm. sort of what he said about this one. And it does feel that there is a wistfulness of nostalgia for things that are happening in the present. Yeah, so mm -hmm. there's there's Red Telephone. Also just want to say, has a beautiful tempo change and, and string break in the middle of it. Yes. Recommend listening to it all the way through mm -hmm. if you enjoyed the minute that you heard because it takes some really interesting turns. For sure, yeah. Another, uh, it, it, th yeah, listening to this song kind of, made me realize because i think they brought in and they had the idea bruce botnick apparently was maybe the impetus for bringing in the strings and or in the orchestra and the horns i think there's some debate about that arthur lee obviously also claims credit for that but either way they worked collaboratively and he worked with uh this arranger david angel to kind of put everything together but this kind of strikes me this song is uh an example of i hear sort of the like you, you almost hear Arthur Lee having the ideas for the arrangement and in the studio, right? Mm. Like it, all these really creative, interesting twists and turns. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, Brian Wilson, you know, with a red fireman's hat in the studio during uh, Pet Sounds. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that the fireman's hat was specifically during the smile sessions. Oh. And yeah, you know, and that's the, 
that's the difference is that they were highly experimental and to their credit, they didn't freak out. They were able to finish this album. They didn't mm-hmm. have this very sad, you know, mental break thing happen to them like Brian <laughs> yeah. Wilson did, you know, which sure. I'm not trying to make light of at all. Like that no, was an yeah. awful thing that happened, unfortunately, with Brian, uh, that he decided that the music was evil and right. he couldn't finish it. Because this, mm-hmm. th- this album deals with is was probably pretty heavy to, to record like this yeah. probably wasn't a really this album fun is way thing. more evil than anything brian ever did that's right i agree <laughs> absolutely this is an evil album a little bit well it's 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 <laughs> definitely grim um right, right 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 it's grim i wouldn't call it evil because no, i think no. that its intentions are really good you know it's just dark it's just dark. it is it's dark and it's frank it's very yes. frank yeah, yeah and speaking of which Let's listen to uh, our final track of the day, which is the last track on the album, You Set the Scene, which is also one of those tracks that you're only going to hear a minute from it, but it's almost seven minutes long. Yep. So it's definitely worth listening to, but we will get into it. Here's a little bit of You Set the Scene. This one is interesting because this one kind of, I would say, starts out as dealing with the rest of the themes of the album. Like, it's sort of about, like, you know, it's about trying to remember if you've been to a place before. And then it gets into, like, these metaphors that are, (laughs) you know, there's a chicken in my nest and she won't lay until I've given her my best. (laughs) I think it's kind of amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, the chicken is clearly some sort of, it's she's, she's a woman right. of some sort, like for sure. So that's all really interesting. And then, and then the song has a big instrumental break and then completely changes tempo mm-hmm. uh, at the end. And this, this part feels like a really different movement that is a little more optimistic and sort of forward looking into the into the future i would say and i think it's kind of an interesting note to end the album on you know yeah too yeah it it like really slows down and yeah i think becomes like a lot more optimistic and maybe turns to like more of a major key and i think they're constantly you know changing keys and they have really complex chord structures here and this is just a good example of their like ending suite of the album (laughs) yeah and also just a really great example overall, I think this piece of good psychedelic music as opposed to bad, wanky 
Yes. And they, they delved into bad, wanky psychedelic themselves before. The la- famously, uh, we could talk about the B-side to Takapo, which is an 18-minute psychedelic freakout dog shit. <laughs> and, and you know what? That's what I'm saying, and I think it's true. And you know who else would say that? Every member of Love hated it. <laughs> they were like, this was really stupid that we did this. Yeah, this was a mistake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. to fill an entire side of an album. With when they had all month. these other songs, I think, like, Arthur Lee said it was shit, and Brian McClain was like, I have all these fucking songs. Let's just play my fucking songs. Yeah, why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and shows sort of a self-sabotaging aspect. Yeah, of, for sure. Of, of their, of what, of what was going on with them at the time. And it's kind of a testament to like, you know, they, I would, I would say they might be, I think you could make the argument that they're the greatest like psychedelic rock band of the sixties. I would make the argument they're one of them. Yeah, for sure. Um, But part of, you know, the sixties psychedelia was a lot of this experimentation and, you know, dabbling it with the avant-garde and just like with any sort of rock or pop music that becomes, or that has an element of, you know, a word we use a lot, indulgence or dabbles in the avant-garde, you have to find that line, right? And they found the line and then they realized where the line was and they came back and made this album, which is just her masterpiece. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And it's great sometimes to be able to track in retrospect a band's progression like that. Exactly. And it's yeah. kind of cool that we have DeCapo yes. only because it shows something that they were trying, you know, really in earnest. And then it turned into this, which is so much of a smarter move for them. This yeah. sort of work. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, it, like DeCapo is really interesting. And there are some great, great songs on that album. Um, but it definitely, you hear them trying to find their voice and which direction they want to go. Like Seven and Seven Is is like a short, almost punky slap in the face rocker but Mm -hmm. still psychedelic and then you get orange skies which is like the brian song i talked about before Mm -hmm. which is a great song but it's sort of a you know it's a the prototypical cliche chocolate rainbow you know teddy bear in the sky yes you know wiggly worm whatever song yeah so they're kind of going in all these directions and it really gets solidified on, on this album yeah absolutely and this album i think why it's so wonderfully psychedelic is because it acknowledges the like confrontational and serious nature of psychedelic experiences yes and there was a lot of uh, artists in the 60s especially in LA at the time who were very interested in expanding their point of view and wanted to do Mm -hmm. it through psychedelics and through the art that they were creating, but I think very few that had the wherewithal to be so frank about what they were doing uh, as Love and as Arthur Lee on this record. You know, so many, so many different musicians at the time reading Doors of Perception or Electric Kool-Aid <laughs> Acid Tests and that kind of stuff, but then writing stuff that was a little lighter or a little less uh, aggressive. You know, and I put like Crosby, Stills and Nash into that uh, category. I put 
Joni Mitchell into that category, who's mm -hmm. one of my most favorite people in yeah. the world as a songwriter. And certainly I would say a lot of her stuff, she's wrapping herself, her she's wrapping her mind around the psychedelic movement, just as an example. Yep. But uh -huh. certainly it was not within her makeup or personality at the time to be so confrontational as this. And yeah. that's one of the things that makes this album such a gift. And it's kind of amazing because we, I think a lot of people think of the 60s as this, you know, 1960 to 1969 was the hippie era. But yeah. really, first of all, Love, their first album came out in 65 and they, had, they were already psychedelic, even though they were more garagey. Definitely. Um, and, but, you know, this album was recorded during the Summer of Love, Summer of 67, where when you think about the quote, you know, if you go Google like 60s Halloween costume, you're going to get the Summer of Love. That's right? correct. The, the hippie yeah. shit. And this album is written, like, I think they were so ahead of their time, even if they were ahead by only a few years, they're in the midst of the Summer of, the love, summer of love, quote unquote. And they saw it, especially Arthur Lee, I think recognized a lot of the hypocrisy and bullshit of it. Yep. And I think that's, I think, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. But I think there, you have a bit of an outside perspective if you're a black guy from LA, South Central, and you know you get the Brian McLeans running around naked, being like, "Woohoo! This is so much fun!" When you know he knows more than anyone, he and Johnny Eccles, they know that this is their this. A lot of this is really is bullshit. Yeah, and I, I think that a lot of that, you know, talking about woohoo, this is fun. What we need to remember, I think, is that a lot of it was fun for a very specific and small f faction of the population. Right. And it was during a really terribly tumultuous time and a very difficult time for young people, which is why it happened in the first place. Right. Like yeah. the, their first album came out, you know, right, right around the time of the Watts riots in 65. Yep. Um, and that's where they're from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, well put. So, you know, when they're on, there's very little footage of them from that time, but mm -hmm. there they are performing a little red book for Dick Clark. Incredible. And they, all seem, they all seem kind of surly yes. and unhappy. Yes. And maybe there's a reason why. And Dick Clark and doesn't get them. Along. They're not <laughs> playing along. Well, they're they're actually being in the interview. They're being very matter of fact, which yes, is great. Right. Dick Clark's like, y'all live in a castle. <laughs> and 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 you know Arthur Lee's like, yeah, it's a it's a castle. And <laughs> and like this is one of the things is like it's L.A. Yeah, there were there's several houses in L.A. that were designed in a weird way. It could be considered castles. Right. Like this isn't like, this isn't like. Yes, we live in the middle of Peoria, Illinois, in a <laughs> giant castle compound. Like this is more like we found a place we could afford, and we could probably afford it because it it, it was built to look like a like a 1930s Universal Studios horror movie castle. Do you right. know what I mean? Like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, it's a castle. It's near Griffith Park. You know, like, he's, like, so matter-of-fact about it. And Dick Clark's like, whoa, that's crazy, man. We're going to have whoa, to go cookie. visit you. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. we'll have to take a camera crew. Take your, you know, go go visit your castle. And Arthur Lee's like, like, I, I, can, I can see the thought process of Arthur Lee in his head during the interview being like, 
yeah, that'll be fun. It'll be like, here's our kitchen. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's like, no, like this isn't, you know, and to them, to the outside world, this sort of communal living situation and living in a, you know, a fucking Bela Lugosi's former castle near Griffith Park to the rest of the world seemed really strange. But when you were in the middle of it, it was just this way that they had chosen to make it work, you know? Uh-huh. Um, right. For the for each other and for, for themselves and, and to like really varying degrees of success, obviously. It's not like the story of this band is, yeah, and they had a great time living communally together, and sometimes some of them had sex, and that was totally fine for for each other. And uh everything was great for the rest of their lives. Like, you know, <laughs> this is a very tumultuous group, and, and they were trying a lot out, and a lot of it actually didn't really fit or work for them. And yep. Yeah, yeah, and this is the last album with uh, the classic love lineup because mm-hmm. a bunch of them left after this one. They were pretty much everyone but Arthur Lee. Yeah, yeah, everybody but Arthur Lee, and then he toured with a different group of musicians. They became sort of more of like a hard rocking blues band. They For released a, while, a, yeah. a few more albums. Yeah, and then you know he had a lot of a lot of really tumultuous bad stuff happen to him. He ended up in jail for six years yeah, because he was a victim of the California state three strikes law. Yep. He had been arrested on a like pretty minor drug conviction. And then I don't remember what the second conviction was, mm-hmm. uh, but the third conviction that he got jailed for was he was in a fight with a neighbor and he fired a gun into the air, yep. which should not, you know, mean that it's six, it's six, years of jail time. Well, he was sentenced to 12 years yes, and got out on early 12, release, got, which is insanity. Yeah, that he the fact that he had to serve six years is, I still think, pretty oh, terrible. Uh, yeah. Ridiculous. And then, you know, and then he had a, a later a late period resurgence, the likes of which I would have liked to have seen for Emmett Rhodes, <laughs> just yeah. to, to bump it back, where he toured under Arthur Lee and Love, and it was just a different group of musicians. I think that th- there were one or two... Gigs. Eccles, I think, came back for a few. Yes, and then there was a version of Love with Eccles fronting it after Lee's death as well. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Brian McLean, I think, played two gigs with him. One that he played and then he claims he wasn't paid for, so he didn't continue. And then I think he played one more gig with Lee uh, at a later date as well, to, to my research, but they never really reconciled Mm-hmm. And then Brian McLean was sitting in an L.A. restaurant on Christmas Day in, I think, 1998, mm-hmm. being interviewed by a young fan who was writing a book about love. Whoa, and I didn't he, know that. Yeah, and he had a heart attack and passed away in the restaurant. That's crazy. I yeah, didn't know that. Yeah, and that was, that's how Brian McLean passed away. And then, Oof. sadly, Arthur Lee was diagnosed with leukemia after a stint of touring and passed away quite quickly from it as well. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, this is definitely the whole story of this band is mired in tragedy and the music is beautiful and really speaks for itself. And I would, I wish that they had had happier endings, these guys. Well, I'm just glad that Arthur Lee did get, did live to, and to a lesser degree, Brian McLean, but he lived to see the his band and particularly this album be re-embraced on a massive global scale so at least he got to see and experience that for himself yeah that's totally true that is really redeeming Mm -hmm. Uh, and then also just as a little bit of a side note before we wrap up because 
this is something we we care about on Kick the Jukebox. Both Arthur Lee and Brian McLean found God and had weird <laughs> hallucinations about God that made them decide that they were men yeah. of God. Yes. Brian McLean in particular apparently drank some soda and then the soda turned to sand. And then he <laughs> yeah. realized that God was speaking through him. And then he joined a ministry and became a Christian music artist for a while, which is all well and good. And, you know, I'm not trying to be dismissive of any experiences like that. But to me, that sounds like an acid flashback. I'm sorry. Yeah. You and know? also, <laughs> it's like, it's also just like a, uh, one of the one of the many ways like washed up hippies can kind of, you know, it's kind of a cliche of the, kind of just like the old, the aging hippie, you know, some of them just find religion and get a little conservative, you know? Yeah, that is absolutely true. Yeah. And, and later on in life, Arthur Lee claims that the voice of God told him to call his band love, you know, yep. as well. So on that note, <laughs> listen, listen to forever changes. It really is it really speaks for itself and the story behind it is fascinating, but yep. the album it's the masterpiece. is, is, is wonderful. Well, this has been another episode of kick the jukebox. If you've enjoyed what you heard, you can follow us, rate and review us on iTunes. We're all over the social media. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. We're there. And instead of supporting us financially, cause we're really enjoying doing this right now and times being what they are, we're both like, super into supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. So uh -huh. you can find a charity of your choice and, and support it if you enjoyed this episode. That being said, I am Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. And we will see you around like a record. Kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kick it a rhyme. Talking about music all the time.